Professors FM. Doug, as you know, we have joined the Professors FM podcast network. So it's extremely exciting. It's like for the first time in my life, I'm going to have academic friends. This is big. And as part of this, we're going to talk about some of the other shows on the network. One of the things we talk a lot about in terms of sports analytics is the role of incentives, right? It's all about incentives. And so one of the other shows on the network is called Taxes for the Masses, brought to you by Lisa DeSimone from the University of Texas and Bridget Stomberg from Indiana University. And so what these two ladies do is they dive into all things taxes. I think it's a great compliment to what we do. In some ways, there's nothing bigger in public policy than taxes in terms of shaping the economy and society because taxes change how people behave. So, you know, give it a listen. Great show. Analytics with Mike Lewis, the podcast where we talk about everything you need to know about sports analytics. Here's your host, Mike Lewis, marketing professor at Emory University. Okay, welcome everyone. Welcome to the Fanalytics podcast. My name is Mike Lewis. I am joined by Mr. Doug Battle on October 19th to discuss. Uh, the current state of the world of sports. How are you today, Doug? I am in recovery, Mike. <laughs> uh, we, <laughs> Those of us in Georgia that care about Georgia sports teams uh, had a rough weekend. Going into it, I had a friend tell me what's going to happen is either Georgia's going to beat Alabama and the Braves are going to win this series or Georgia's going to get – they're going to like blow a lead – and the Braves are going to blow a 3-1 lead in their series. And I was like, well, we both know how that's how that's going to go between those two. And uh, so that's that's what happened. Thankfully, I'm not super invested in the Braves like I am with Georgia football. So the the Georgia sports curse, if there is – is that something people formally talk about? Or is it just that yes. Georgia is a traumatic place to be a sports fan? Oh, it's – no, Georgia sports curse is a real thing. And I've been trying to dig deep, you know, little investigative journalism, find out what we did or what the state of Georgia did um, to cause this. So I tweeted out last night uh, asking some Georgia fans what, what the deal is, like what caused the Georgia sports curse. And we had one former Georgia player said that it's, uh, it's actually Stone Mountain and like the Confederate monument there. And it's like, we, we just can't be forgiven from that. And so, like, until it gets blown up, uh, Georgia sports are going to be cursed. And so that's one theory. Another theory is had something to do with, like, the 1996 Olympics. And uh, it was supposed to be in Athens, Greece. But then instead they had it in Atlanta, Georgia. And the Greek gods are upset. Um, and so they've just been taking out their wrath on the state of Georgia ever since. Well, you know, there's... Um there's a Chicago curse, and I just looked up the details. So it's, but you know, it's, it's something anyone growing up in Chicago knows, or at least knew before it was broken. But the curse of the Billy Goat, and I, you know, I don't remember exactly the details, but somehow the Cubs offended a, a guy with a goat, and he put a curse on the Cubs, and the curse lasted seventy-one years. <laughs> um, yeah. So, what are the historical high points for the Georgia sports curse? 
Well, there are there are no high points, Mike, uh, for the Georgia sports curse. Unless you're one, of, there are people that I know that just take pleasure in watching Georgia sports uh, lose. And I'm not talking about like masochists. I'm talking about like a Phillies fan will like love it when the Braves lose, but also when the Falcons lose. Or like a Alabama fans the same way about Georgia uh, or Auburn, for example. Except some of them are also Braves fans. So there's a little overlap, but. Yeah, so uh, when you say high points, uh, high points for those folks, but low points for for Georgia sports fans. Um, blowing a twenty eight to three Super Bowl lead against the New England Patriots. That's, that's. I mean, how how do you do that? But that one's recent, right? So I, I assume this this curse has been talked about for many years. So that that that's the late. Well, I guess the Braves blowing a three to one. Braves uh, blowing three lead. to one. Uh, Georgia has blown. Four leads against Alabama, and they have not beaten Alabama since 2007. But we've blown leads in four games since then, uh, double-digit leads in the national championship and in the SEC championship the follow-up year, and they lost in similar fashion to the backup quarterback in both games. Uh, also blew the 2012 SEC championship that would have – pretty much guaranteed Georgia national championship against Notre Dame had they won. Um, I don't know. I mean, the, Bra- the, the, the Hawks had the number one seed and got swept in the Eastern Conference Finals one year. Um, there's also players that have moved around. So we all know Justin Fields leaving Georgia. But, like, the Falcons had Brett Favre for a year, and he left. And then uh, the Hawks had Luka Doncic and traded him on draft night which has been heavily criticized. And it's kind of still, that one's still in judgment because Trey Young's had a good career. But, I mean, the consensus is kind of that Luka is the future of the of the NBA. Um, and just on an individual game level, like not even these championship games, but Georgia, there's been like the prayer at Jordan-Hare. They gave up a Hail Mary to Tennessee. Um, there's been a lot of blown games in dramatic fashion where it feels like if a Georgia sports team has a lead at the end of a game, people don't feel excited. They feel dread because they're (laughs) thinking, they're like fantasizing about ways it could go wrong. And then almost every time, whatever they thought of happens. Well, you know, it's an an interesting phenomenon because there is definitely something to, you know, I don't know if we want to call it a curse, but there's definitely something to certain organizations feeling, and it's hard to put this in the right kind of vocabulary because you always want to resort to things like saying, well, they're snake bit or they're cursed, mm-hmm. right? But th- there does seem to be something that, let's say, goes beyond just sort of the law of averages in terms of the the luck that certain organizations experience or certain cities experience. You know, I always... um when when I'm talking about histories of winning, I almost always come back to teams like the the Cleveland Browns or the Cincinnati Bengals, where it it doesn't seem, you know, nothing ever seems to go right, and and mm-hmm. so then the question becomes, what is what is it behind uh, what is it behind the scenes? Now, as you're describing the Georgia sports curse, it's almost like you've got a combination of two things, though. There's there's this element of, you know, Georgia never gets the breaks versus Alabama. And, you know, that, that could be sort of just kind of the mysteries of life. But then there also seems to be a history of kind of 
bad decision making, and and so that that's kind of interesting. Yeah, the mm-hmm. the when bad decision making becomes systematic, um, <laughs> even across different general managers and across different teams. That's a that's a fascinating thing. And you know, all I can think is, you know, we all experience losing streaks in life. And losing streaks do seem to play, you know, they, they seem to get into your head and losing begets more losing in a way. Yeah, it does. It's it is especially interesting to me, like you said, when it's across franchises. Cause when you like a team like the Washington football team, the Washington R words, they all bl- they blame it on Dan Snyder. They blame it on the owner because he's the common denominator. They have different coaches, different quarterbacks, different general managers. The fans are convinced Dan Snyder is the problem. Decision-making issues over the years, it all ties back to Dan Snyder. When it's something like the Braves, Falcons, Hawks, and Georgia Bulldogs, and I guess you could throw in Georgia Tech as well, um, there is no co- – I mean, the only common denominator is the city and the state. And so that's why it, it ends up being this everyone just thinks there's a curse because that, that could only be the only thing tying together these franchises and organizations. Well, you know, a couple of points related to that. And so number one, I think it's remarkable that as a big Georgia Bulldog fan, you threw Georgia Tech into the equation as a legitimate sports program. Uh, but, but number two, you know, when I started doing, um, you know, and you can find this on the web, these uh, these fandom rankings. The Atlanta sports fan has been a notoriously bad fan um, in, in a lot of in terms of a lot of different metrics. So you know we used to do these that we you know I'd still do these things in a quanti- quantitative fashion, quantitative fashion. And in Georgia fans that almost always kind of end up at about the midpoint in the league or a little less, but. When we first, this is for professional sports. For correct? professional sports, yeah. In yeah. fact, you know the Georgia Bulldogs are off the chart in terms of the yeah. The, I was going to say <laughs> the quantitative metrics for for college fandom. I, I think we had them for football. They always rank in the top two or three. It's, it's really kind mm-hmm. of um, an amazing fan base. But you know, it, it, and it's not just the quantitative rankings. If you look at sort of just you know, type in best fans or worst fans. Atlanta will be on everyone's kind of anecdotal based based list. And I remember, I remember a story. It was about five six years ago, I think, where the Falcons were playing the Steelers, and this was in the old Georgia Dome. And the big national news story coming out of it was that the fan the the stadium was more black and gold than Falcons colors. And part of me thinks that while that kind of seems like kind of a silly little anecdote, that that's the kind of thing that pervades an organization or mm-hmm. a, or a city, and you just you, you just feel like you can't win. And when you feel like you can't win, that's going to change the the precision of the decisions, and things are going to tend to go awry. And again, kind of feedback effects make it worse and worse, right? Because, you know, when, when you start losing and you start grasping at straws, trying to right the, she- the ship, I think there's a danger that you're going to truly run it aground. I think so too. And I think even looking back, and this is a painful subject for some of our Georgia football listeners, so you might want to just plug your ears, but the whole Justin Fields scenario, mm-hmm. uh, Georgia was coming off a national championship appearance with Jake Fromm. They had Fields come in, who was the highest-rated recruit in Georgia football history. Uh, but we had a good thing going with Fromm, and I think there was some fear 
of blowing it. There was a fear of switching quarterbacks and regretting that and, and leaving a sure thing and what felt like a winning formula. And so Georgia held on to a clearly inferior player to kind of the outside viewer in Jake Fromm because they didn't want to risk blowing it. And I'm not saying that's exactly what happened, but it is an explanation for what happened. Yeah, it's, it's a strange phenomenon, really kind of a tough thing to pin down. Okay, but that, uh, you know, staying with Georgia football for a moment, college football playoff speculation is yeah. starting to heat up. We are at, uh, I think, week seven. Um, teams have played four or five games at this point. And uh, the loss of Georgia to Alabama, in some ways it's kind of a throwaway, right, because of Georgia – wins the east of the SEC, yeah. then they get to, they get another shot at Alabama, and if they, mm-hmm. they win out, they're going to go to the playoffs. Yeah, um, that's the case. So Georgia, I think they're four right now. Mm. So they're very much in the picture, but, I mean, you got to remember Ohio State. Yeah, <laughs> Ohio State's going to run the table unless I'm crazy. Like, unless something crazy happens, I would be shocked if Ohio State's not in that playoff. So, I mean, Ohio State, Clemson, and Alabama all seem like shoe-ins. You look at the rest of Bama's schedule, they've played their hardest game this last weekend. Um, and potentially, I mean, Ole Miss and Texas A&M were probably two of their harder games on the rest of their schedule. So, Auburn's not the same challenge it normally would be, although you never know in that series, but you kind of do this year if you've watched either team. So, I think there's three shoe-ins already. I think we know three of the four in that fourth spot you're looking at before this weekend, you would have thought, well, maybe the ACC will get two teams. Maybe UNC will run the table and just lose to Clemson. Um, ACC also has Notre Dame who jumped. (laughs) They jumped in the rankings after a 12 to seven win over Louisville, I believe unranked Louisville. So they're kind of doing what they do. Notre Dame beating uh, some bad competition, staying in the top five. So I think Notre Dame has a shot. UNC is probably out after losing to Florida state. Uh, I mean, I guess they would have to beat Clemson, which seems unlikely. And so, and then, yeah, you got Georgia there. If Georgia runs the table, if Florida runs the table, Florida, Florida and Georgia are in the same spot. If Georgia beats Florida and then goes and beats Alabama and they win their regular season games, they'll be in. If Florida beats Georgia and wins the rest of their regular season games, they'll be in. So those two teams, I mean, that Georgia-Florida game is going to be huge for the playoff picture, probably more so than the Georgia-Alabama game because those two teams are probable to play each other again. Okay, so we can start to see the outlines of the controversies, though, right? So let's Mm -hmm. say Ohio State runs the table, so they're in. Uh, Clemson is, let's assume they're in as well. And let's say it's Alabama versus Georgia for the SEC championship. If Alabama wins, Alabama is in. Georgia is out. Yep. If Georgia wins, it seems like, you know, it seems like Alabama's never going to be on the outside looking looking in. No, even they'll, if they, they'll still be in. Even yeah. if they lose a, a conference championship game. But my favorite, and, and look, this is a long shot, but if you look at the polls, um, the number 12 ranked team in the country is BYU at 5-0. and <laughs> Hey, they, they beat Tennessee last year. <laughs> that was a pretty big win. Um, yeah, okay. you know, a couple other undefeated. I mean, there are a couple other undefeateds in here. Um, 
But BYU's, like the entire Pac-12. Yeah, <laughs> Big Ten too. But <laughs> BYU's toughest game in the remaining part of the schedule, I, I looked this up. They've got Texas State followed by Western Kentucky. Then they've got um, Boise State University, so that would appear to be the big game on the schedule, uh, at 0-0 zero and zero Boise State University. <laughs> then they finish with University of North Alabama. I had to look, mm. I had to look that one up. And San Diego State University. And, and so you, you can have a situation where you've got a team like uh, a BYU with a decent historical brand name undefeated trying to barge their way into the college football playoff. It's it's never happened, right? We've never had one of these teams from a non-Power mm-hmm. 5 conference get into the playoff. Is this year the year? I don't think so. I think I think it would take two losses for teams like Alabama and Georgia. Like, Because in the scenario we discussed earlier, let's say, theoretically, Georgia or Florida, we'll say Florida just so it's, we can stop talking about Georgia. We'll say Florida runs the table, Beats Alabama in the SEC championship. Their one loss is early in the season and mostly forgotten by then. Alabama's one loss is to a playoff team, and Alabama otherwise ran the table in the toughest con- or what's perceived as the toughest conference in college football. Um, I don't see either of those teams dropping, and if it's Georgia, even more so because. Georgia's loss to Alabama would be negated by their win to Alabama, but at the same time, Alabama's loss to Georgia would be negated by their win to Georgia, so they would practically be undefeated in the eyes of a lot of people um, with essentially a tie against a a top-four team. If Clemson dropped one, is BYU going to jump them as an undefeated? Okay, That's more likely. Clemson or Ohio State because their schedules are a little weaker, but I still don't see it. I agree with everything you're saying in terms of the the talent – of the teams. Okay. I, I agree with you a hundred percent in terms of, you know, so if your argument is the most talented teams, the best teams should play for the championship. Agree a hundred percent. What do you think about the fact though, that if you've got a team like BYU division one football team, they are undefeated and they are, and this is, this is kind of an, an old argument, right? They yeah. are essentially locked out. They didn't have a chance at the, I mean, talk about issues of competitive balance and parity. They mm-hmm. did not have a chance for to be in the college football player playoff from the start of the season. It didn't matter what they did. Can you yeah, run? they can win every game. Can you mm-hmm. run a league like this long-term where some teams are essentially ineligible to participate for the championship? That's a great question, Mike. And you look at UCF a couple years ago uh, claiming a national championship because they were locked out and they won all their games and they believed they would have won that game. And who's to say they wouldn't, you know, in in their perspective. And so a league that's set up this way where a team can control everything that's within their control and still not even have a chance at a championship (laughs) um, has got to be disheartening for those fan bases. Some would argue scheduling and the athletic department athletic directors um, job is to put that team in a position to be competitive as far as making the playoff is that if that's what their aim is and if they're scheduling teams from the OVC every week or the Mac or whatever conferences they're playing <laughs> um, you can't expect to make a playoff when when you're scheduling one tier of opponent in another team is scheduling another. This year's a different scenario, right? Because teams are only playing in conference. And so they don't even have the option. 
Uh, and so they would they would be locked out by the league. And I don't know. I yeah. I've always been a believer that there there does need to be different leagues for college football, but um, for the, different tiers. Of have teams. the Power Five separate fully? Yeah. Power Five plus Notre Dame, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, or or some equivalent where it's kind of top 50 teams scenario but because it, it does stink for those teams and i don't like the not, idea of top 50 though doug because i have a feeling that leaves out my fighting illini and i would prefer to keep the the dream alive hey they're they're undefeated yeah they are <laughs> so that, i mean we didn't even talk about this but they're i mean it's still plausible for them to make the playoff Yes, which got to win out. <laughs> Absolutely, got to win they on can, Friday night first. I mean, how how often <laughs> does Illinois control their own destiny this far into the season? I mean, we're five weeks into college football, and Illinois controls their own destiny. Okay, you realize what you're doing to me, right? It's it's, it's kind of uh, it's kind <laughs> of great, right? It's like the the it's, it's a crack, it's a great lesson for fandom, right? Kind of twisting the little knife in a playful way. Um, (laughs) You know, look, the Illini are probably going to struggle, but it's still, it still hurts, man. Okay. It's Luke Ford's season. Luke Ford's carrying that team. Yes, it is. Okay. So switching over, uh, I don't know about you. I I feel like baseball has finally started with the, the championship series and now the, the world series. It's, um, I feel like baseball is now getting their their shot at center stage. Yeah, I think for a lot of baseball fans this weekend, or I guess a lot of casual baseball fans, right? A lot of sports fans that watch baseball when it's interesting. This weekend was opening night. It was opening night for the MLB. Game seven, (laughs) (laughs) uh, opening night for most fans. And uh, a lot of drama this weekend. Obviously, we we already discussed the Braves uh, blowing their lead. We did not get the result that you wanted with the Astros. I guess the result that you thought would be best for the sport. Man, how crazy would it have been Astros-Dodgers? I mean, the best rematch they could have had happening, right? I mean, outside oh. of the outside of the, the dream scenario of, let's say, the Yankees playing the Cubs or the Yankees playing the Dodgers, um, that was tailor-made for... for TV and for the talking head shows, it would have been, um, you know, all publicity is good publicity kind of situation. Yeah. So I guess for all of our sports is rigged um, (laughs) fans out there, people in that party, we've learned this year. Maybe it's not because we were thinking definitely Lakers Bucks. And then after the Bucks were out, definitely Lakers Celtics. Like that's, that's the winning formula for the NBA. And they ended up with Lakers Heat, which was a total dud. Uh, and then in, in baseball, it's got to be Dodgers Astros, right? That's the that's, that's the fun one. That's yeah. Well, that's what that's where the MLB really wins big, and uh, it doesn't happen. So maybe things. I think in retrospect, we think things are rigged. Like if you look back over that Braves Dodgers series, and, it, and Braves fans are like, "Oh, that was you know that one pitch was a was a they called it a ball, and it was really a strike and." Looking back, like it was so rigged, like they're never going to let Atlanta make it to the World Series again. Uh, in retrospect, we think things are rigged, but if you actually ahead of time, because you and I talked about this a few weeks ago, we were kind of predicting championships for these leagues, and you know, sports is so predictable and all this stuff, and it's <laughs> it's predictable in hindsight. Yeah, well, except for the NBA. 
Um, let, let me let me say this. So it's uh, the Heat made the finals. Yeah. So separate from the separate from the game of baseball, what what's happened with baseball is kind of an interesting story in terms of in terms of fandom, in terms of all the teams that were the the final four teams, right? So we've got the Astros as the most hated team, kind of trying to do a redemption story. We've got the big market Los Angeles Dodgers, who I believe had the first or second highest payroll in the league this year. We've yeah. got the Atlanta, and really the Dodgers are one of you know MLB's more marquee franchises. We've got the Atlanta Braves. You know, we we've talked some in the past about the structure of teams winning and how that builds fandom. Where there there's this funny kind of sweet spot like as a, as a team is up and coming there's so much excitement around a team right when a team has been a basement dweller and they start to win and they start to make it the playoffs the fans get excited yeah the Braves have had truly a remarkable run of success over the last really 30 years in terms of playoff appearances but very seldom crossing the line in winning in winning championships. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's left that franchise with a, a solid fan base, but not you know not being one of the really kind of special and, and look, I love the guys at the Braves, but not being like one of those special teams where the you know people really and again, this is kind of a tough thing because fans will always object to it. But not getting to the level of the Red Sox fandom or the Yankees fandom or, or the Cubs fandom. And then the last team in all this, the Tampa Bay Rays. So I don't think the Rays have ever won a World Series championship. They are one of the classic small market teams whenever there's, there's discussions about the small markets versus the big markets. Uh, I, I looked it up this morning and it looks like the Rays payroll is about one third of the Dodgers. And so there's there's all there's all sorts of interesting angles in terms of how the MLB season played out. Well, and, and on top of it, you know, Major League Baseball has probably been the most forthcoming, uh, reporting that they've lost about three billion dollars this year. So in some ways, an utterly fascinating baseball season. Yeah, it 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 really is fascinating. Uh, the whole payroll thing to me, you know, we talk about parity and leagues has always been fascinating in baseball because it seems like almost every year the World Series is some team that is paying five times as much for their roster than the next team is, and and thus they're able to acquire better talent, and usually that team ends up winning. Um, And so it feels like less of an achievement. It kind of reminds me of, I remember this summer during the, when we were watching The Last Dance, and the Bulls, you know, they made the Bulls beating the Jazz seem like this miracle upset, whereas in reality, the Bulls roster, I mean, Michael Jordan alone was being paid more than the entire Utah Jazz <laughs> roster. Um, and so their their payroll was was so much bigger. And it's like, oh, well, of course they won. They, they're able to just buy off all these great players. Um, so that that's kind of an interesting story that isn't talked about as often as it maybe should be in, in sports and particularly in the MLB, in my opinion. Well, I, I, I just had a, I did an interview with a reporter from uh, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, if memory mm-hmm. serves, last week talking about the Pirates. And it, it, it's always the same story, right? The idea of like these small market teams just not being able to compete. Uh, the fans 
or if they are able to compete, it's usually for the short short term, right? You you invest in the minor leagues at relatively lower cost. You develop a core of players as they come of age. The team experiences some success. And then the question is, can you get to the point where you're winning a championship and really reinforcing and building fandom before those players head out to greener pastures via free agency? Yeah, and even when you try to outsmart it, like you look at Brad Stevens at Butler, you know, takes them to the Final Four multiple times and finds a way to overcome uh, the discrepancy in, in I guess, resources that a team like Butler would have as opposed to like an ACC school like UNC. And then Brad Stevens leaves for the Boston Celtics and he could have left for an ACC school like UNC. Well, it's it, it's a good way to put it, and the the analogy is to uh, you know, especially when you talk about Billy Bean, like the idea of are are player salary markets efficient? Are there essentially spots where you can exploit market inefficiencies by being a little bit smarter? You know, the the classic story of Billy Bean was, I think, guys that drew walks, right? Yeah. Um, and, and so this led to a lot of emphasis on the on-base plus slugging statistic where on-base is better than, than batting average. But I, I think you, you nailed it indirectly that the challenge is it's not just about being smarter. Somehow you have to have a way to protect it for the long term. And in baseball, it's difficult to do so, right? Because if play, it, it takes players years to mature, then – you know, by the time you're able to exploit your being smarter and finding that inefficiency, the rules of free agency are such that those guys are just about out the door. It's it's one of the it's one of the constraining factors on analytics. Now, of course, you've got a different issue now, where as analytics appeared to work, you know, as the A's had some success, they never won the World Series. Then other teams can see that success, and guess what? Now the big market teams can actually invest more in analytics and spend more time looking for those marketing market efficiencies. Yeah, and this is somewhat along the same lines, but if you look at what's happening in college football and the way rules are changing, we're moving toward a uh, more of a free agent type system where players can transfer uh, without penalty one time in their career. Except and Luke so, Ford. <laughs> Except Luke Ford, yeah. but the the rules are are moving toward a guy like Luke Ford in the future being able to transfer, no penalty, play immediately. Um, maybe sounds good for the kids. Maybe sounds good for the schools. Uh, like like maybe they're going to stop an inefficiency. But when we talk about parity, let's say someone like Sam Howell, who may be somewhat undiscovered, and goes to UNC and lights it up as a freshman. UNC found this kid. But all of a sudden, he can go play at Georgia, or he can go play at Alabama, or he can go play at Clemson, or he can go play at Ohio State. Those schools, I think, are going to really suffer from from this over time because I think players know that, or, or I guess are under the impression that their best odds at making the pros and being a high draft pick um, come with the elite coaching and the elite resources that some of these more elite football schools have. And thus, the, the whole transfer rule, I think, is going to screw over the teams that are finding inefficiencies and in recruiting right now and, and finding some of those diamonds in the rough. Very true. Very. Po- I mean, a lot of, 
I think we're definitely on the cusp of college sports changing in very fundamental levels, and that's a, that's mm-hmm. a great point. Okay, we are also in the midst of the NFL season. Anything catch yeah. your eye NFL-related this weekend, Doug? Uh, I mean, fantasy bounce back for me. Okay. Last week. Got a, <laughs> Let's go to what's important. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, as anyone that's been listening to the show knows, I had my first five draft picks. So rounds one through five have all been out from like game one. It's been ridiculous. Um, so that's been frustrating and I've had to kind of make shift via trade and good thing is I'm the top of the waiver list or whatever because my team is so bad, so I'm able to get some good free agents um, from week to week. But, yeah, makeshift roster that has um, gotten the job done for me. Uh, I will say, as a New York Giants fan, I'm at the point where I want to tank. I want to uh, get Trevor or Justin Fields, and the Giants got their first win of the season against the Redskins yesterday, which they did this, or excuse me, against the Washington football team yesterday. They did the same thing last year. They cost themselves a draft pick because of it, essentially, or I guess a spot up in the draft. We got some of that, but then I think the big story yesterday was the uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneers beating down the undefeated Green Bay Packers. Absolutely, because this was the the, the marquee previous generation quarterbacks going to head in terms of Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers. Um, yeah. I, I, I heard a stat that I think they'd only met, what, three or four times previously? Yeah, I don't think they've played very often. I mean, different different conferences, and um, they've both played in Super Bowls, but at different times. So this was, uh, you know, a rare Rodgers versus Brady sighting. And I'll be honest, I didn't expect – and. 2020 for that to really mean anything. Um, I was expecting more of like a Peyton Manning, Denver Broncos type <laughs> performance from especially Tom Brady. Uh, but you got to hand it to Aaron Rodgers and, and Tom Brady for the seasons they're having. And of course, yesterday was was more the Buccaneers day. Um, but obviously, Aaron Rodgers had a heck of a season so far otherwise. Well, you know what? I I wanted to talk a little bit about Levy and Bell, but as you brought up Tampa Bay, uh, the, the Buccaneers, here, here's a strange observation. Is Tampa Bay the key sports city in America in 2020? NHL. Um, World Series? Bu- World Series, <laughs> Buccaneers. Buccaneers yeah. being probably one of the top stories with you know all their uh, – you know, Tom Brady winning, uh, the way I'm that still roster skeptic. has been assembled. <laughs> I'm still a skeptic of the Buccaneers. I will say, I thought the Leonard Fournette signing uh, was just easy money for them. Uh, him getting cut was kind of a head-scratcher to me, and they, they were able to pick up a pretty good running back for little to no cost. Um, but I'm still skeptical as far as their, like, Super Bowl hopes. Um, but it is, if you know, we talk about, like, we – is kind of coming full circle. We talked about the Atlanta sports town at the beginning, but for whatever reason, it's like success breeds success in a city. Yeah. Um, and, and so with the lightning and the rays and now the bucks like getting hot and starting to look elite. And it's like, is this Tampa's year like across sports? Well, and I, I look, I can't think of an example where, you know, Tampa Bay has been the, you know, got in this much attention. It's got to yeah. be. It's it's got to be great to be. Uh, I mean, you know, they they've had some good years, especially with the Bucks and 
you know, some of the Super Bowl runs, but I think those are about 20 years in the in the past now. So it's kind of it's just an interesting little um, side note for the strangeness of the year 2020. Uh, you yeah, know, also Tam- Tampa's not too far from Orlando, so Tampa doesn't have a basketball team. Um, but those of our betting people, you might want to start looking into the Orlando Magic for this upcoming season. I'm kidding, though. Uh, their roster isn't that good. Okay, so the, the, the finals uh, was won in Orlando this year, just not by the sure. Orlando Magic. So the other NFL story that caught my mind, because I've long been interested in this topic, and, and you brought up an example of the example of Leonard Fournette is Le'Veon Bell. I, I love following mm-hmm. running backs. I think they're the running back position is one of the more interesting ones and in, one in terms of analytics. And so Le'Veon Bell has signed with the Kansas City Chiefs. And uh, is he going to play tonight? I think so. Okay. The it, Chiefs kind of have a history of, of this kind of uh, move at running back. And it's it's an interesting one, right? Because if you track Levy and and the th- the reason why I'm always fascinated by running backs is they've got such they've got such short lifespans in the NFL mm-hmm. that typically by the time they are done with their rookie contract, the the team that picked them can often you know is in a position to do a couple of franchise or transition player, I forget what the what they're calling these things these days, tags on the player and essentially mm-hmm. use up all of that player's useful life. And, and so, you know, in the case of Bell, obviously he was a star for the Steelers. I, I looked up some of the numbers just to refresh my memory. The Steelers had offered him $70 million at one point. He refused to sign that offer, sat out a year, Came back, signed a deal for fifty-two million dollars, fifty-two point five million dollars, which put him just short of the deal Todd Gar- Todd Gurley had signed uh, to play for the Jets. Had a one fairly disappointing season for the Jets and one kind of non-existent season for the Jets, and has now signed for a, a you know prorated one million dollar contract. So expects to make just short of seven hundred thousand for the Kansas City Chiefs. Yeah. He's a guy that bet on himself, um, which, speaking of big stories, Dak Prescott, I don't know if, if we've touched on that either, but he's someone that bet on himself that clearly has had some extreme misfortune here recently. But, yeah, Le'Veon Bell bet on himself, and uh, ever since he did, performance has really not been the same. Uh, but, I mean, I think I think part of the reason that a team like the Steelers was reluctant to paying him the big bucks as they know that from an analytical standpoint, he's likely to have already played his best football as, as is often the case with running backs. Uh, those early years when their knees are in good health. And I mean, those are their best years and he's already had some injuries and he's also had some off the field problems. And so a, a tough guy to invest in, but for a team like the Kansas city chiefs, uh, they got nothing to lose. They're already a contender and maybe, you know, he's clearly a high upside guy. We know what he can do or what, what he's capable of when healthy and when at the top of his game. So they're just like, maybe we'll, we'll see if he'll do it for us. If not, they already have a guy like Edwards Alaire that's that's pretty dang good running back. Yeah, so so two key points in all that. So number one, this idea of betting on your – the players betting on themselves. And, you know, there's, there probably is some bias in all that in terms of, you know, these guys have always been the best – these guys have largely been the best player on their on the field their entire lives. 
But what they probably fail to fully factor in is the possibility of of injury and it all kind of going away, right? Um, and, and look, that, that makes some sense. You know, we all feel like we're invincible, especially when we're in our, our 20s. And it's something that I think players have got to, you know, maybe there's a, a room for analytics to support the player side in these negotiations yeah. in terms of really being realistic about the expected value or the expected likelihood of injury and how that affects the expected value of what a contract is or a holdout is going to pay out. Uh, you know, as you were having that, as you were talking about the the Chiefs taking a flyer on that, you know, that, that made me think of New, New England's quarterback yep. position, of course. And it is kind of interesting that while as fans, I think we see tremendous upside in, in both of these guys, in Cam Newton and Le'Veon Bell, that it's worth taking a flyer for a, a million bucks. It's interesting that the market doesn't – talk about market efficiencies. It's interesting that the market hasn't doesn't bid some of that stuff up, that other teams aren't seeing that and say, hey, so they mm-hmm. get $2 million or they get $2.5 million. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we've seen that with New England often. Uh, Josh Gordon in New England – uh, a few years back. I mean, th- they'll take guys that are kicked off other teams or um, anything that they view as an inefficiency as far as potentially an elite talent at a at an undervalued um, cost or at, at some kind of discount. They take a flyer on those guys. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Usually doesn't destroy the team. Um, Randy Moss was a guy like that way back when, and that one really paid off for New England. And so... We've seen that over the years, and like you said, it, it is amazing that more teams aren't taking that approach. I think um, it's something that teams in contention tend to feel like they're able to do and that it's worth doing because I think a team like Cincinnati, you know, if they were to get like a Josh Gordon or a Randy Moss at that stage in their careers, when the Patriots got those guys, I don't really see what difference it makes for them. They're, I mean, it's not changing anything. They almost want to lose games to to be able to draft a guy like Joe Burrow. Uh, so I think it, it depends on the situations of the team partially, but I also do think some teams overlook the uh, you know the potential value there. Okay, so uh, I, I think this is about the point where we can start to move towards wrapping up this episode. Mm-hmm. Any last thoughts, any last topics that you want to dig into for a minute? Um, man, not really. It's, it's weird that it's the off-season for the NBA. We haven't talked about that much and NBA offseason is usually as exciting or more exciting uh to to some fans it's a fun one yeah than the regular season I've already seen Lakers fans are insane dude that (laughs) and I don't mean that in a bad way it's just I know it sounds like I do but I really don't they they're always fantasizing because they're so used to getting like all the stars and like they just won the NBA Finals with LeBron James and Anthony Davis. And I've seen all these articles about, like, can the Lakers land Bradley Beal? Can the Lakers acquire this superstar, that superstar, like, in addition to their championship team? Um, of course, Anthony Davis is planning to re-sign with the Lakers. But free agency in the NBA is something that I'm going to be keeping an eye on. I mean, you look at you look at this year's NBA Finals. It was determined by LeBron's free agency a few years back going to the Lakers. Jimmy Butler going to the Heat. There's there's so much at play in free agency that determines really what goes on during the season. So I, I'm a big offseason guy in the NBA, and I'm looking forward to that. I think you're dead right on that. I mean, you know, if we think about 
we think about the NBA, especially how it's evolved over the last couple of years, like the the Bulls drafted Michael Jordan, um, but it, it, you know, I mean, so teams used to be built by the draft, but I think that's becoming yeah. uh, we could we could look over that historically, and I think that's becoming much more of a rarity, and, and maybe the key moment. You know, to give LeBron credit, maybe the key moment was the decision. Was that yep. the first time that players got together, uh, colluded perhaps a soft collusion mm-hmm. to form a super team? And you know, it was that a, a, a was that a sort of a very special kind of important moment in in how the NBA works. Yeah, and we had seen super teams before, as far as teams with multiple top 10 type players, uh, but where it was coordinated by the players and not by a general manager Mm -hmm. through the draft or through trades. That is the first one I can remember. And it certainly has changed the way the NBA operates because even a a player like Giannis, diamond in the rough player for the Milwaukee Bucks, you know, got him later first round in the draft. I don't even, I don't know if he was even a lottery pick. Um, But now everyone's talking about, he's a free agent next year. Where's he going to go? Is he going to go to, Golden State, is he going to go to Miami and team up with Jimmy Butler and company? Uh, and so it's something where a lot of teams, their offseason moves for this offseason will be to set themselves up for next offseason and their run at Giannis or, or a player of that caliber. And so I think, again, when we talk about parity, the whole system in the NBA isn't favorable to a small market team like Milwaukee because they can find the diamond and the rough guy and and they can create a, a winning team around him and a team that's might win a championship at some point. Um, but that player has the choice to leave and go somewhere like the Los Angeles Lakers where he feels like he could probably win six championships or, or somewhere like the Heat where he feels like they're a player away. Um, and, and these bigger market, bigger brand teams tend to always pull away. Because even Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant, those two guys were loyal, uh, but they they were drafted into a place where they were comfortable. I don't know mm-hmm. that Kobe, if he had been drafted by the Memphis Grizzlies or Charlotte, I know Charlotte was a, an option for him, uh, that he would have won championships and that he would have been happy there. And, and of course he was happy in L.A. He had Shaq, and then they attracted Paul Gasol and uh, Lamar Odom. I mean, they he was always surrounded by talent in those cities. So in the NBA, there, I think the parity issue comes down to the free agency and, and how it works now with players being able to dictate where they go. And obviously with the big markets attracting the players that, that want to build a big brand and also win championships. Yeah, a- absolutely true. You know, Milwaukee's got to feel like their window is about to close. Um, and and I think you're right, too. So it's like, you know, one, one of the things I think we've got to look forward to in the next, you know, next few years of, of sports is, you know, how does, you know, we, we've seen this with the NBA, right, where now players are kind of dictating who's going to be competitive. Hey, we've, we've seen this. We we're just talking about Major League Baseball, you know, maybe small market teams have to use a strategy of kind of a, well, I'm going to be competitive for a few years, and then I'm going to go dormant and, re- and rebuild. It's um, yeah. becoming a more and more a bigger part of sports. So, why don't we wrap it up there as usual? Um, I don't know how many times I'm going to have a chance to do this, so I will end this by saying, "Go Illini and go Luke Ford."